Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, fixing the Pentagon's tech requirements writing isn't an option. If we want to stay competitive, I just don't really see a choice because the the speed at which technology is changing, it's impossible for anyone in the department to know how to write a requirement for it and keep up with that speed. The Postal Service goes all in on new tech development strategies. We used two very um, sort of modern concepts. One is the concept of containerization and the other is the concept of queuing. Uh, Those theories are now going to be very, very frequently and readily harnessed. And customer experience driving technology, not the other way around. There was a bunch of technology involved in this project, but it was really about how do we get a needed good to Americans in the middle of a pandemic. It's Tuesday, February 22nd, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Internal Revenue Service will use login.gov for user authentication. The Treasury Department says it's working with the General Services Administration on the, quote, security standards and scale it needs to adopt the platform. Earlier this month, the IRS gave up on a commercial platform that used facial recognition technology to authenticate users. The Marine Corps is adding artificial intelligence to its retention arsenal. The Corps says the technology will use data to show it which Marines are more likely to stay in uniform. It's developing the algorithms with the Applied Physics Lab at Johns Hopkins University. You can read more on these and lots of other news stories at fedscoop.com. The lineup for IT Mod Week next week is loaded with stars. Government leaders like Congressman Jerry Conley, the administrator of GSA, Robin Carnahan, and loads of chief information officers and other technology leaders from government and industry will speak and participate in events. IT Mod Week starts this coming Monday and runs all next week. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Deputy Secretary of Defense, Kathleen Hicks, says, quote, American small businesses and our U.S. industrial base must expand. She made that remark on the release of an assessment of the state of competition in the defense industrial base. Megan Metzger is founder and chief executive officer of Decode. Megan, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You deal with these companies all the time that would love to become part of the defense industrial base. We've been studying this for years and years and years. Are we making any progress? Are we making any headway and making it easier for these companies to become part of the defense industrial base? Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's really fantastic to be here. Um, You know, we have been working on this for quite some time. I would say we've made incremental progress, but really there's going to have to be a a much bigger fundamental shift in the way that the department works if we truly, truly want to catalyze the new industrial base full of these great emerging technologies. Um, You know, you saw a lot with kind of innovative procurement pop up. We see a lot of prototyping. I would say the department's never had a problem with prototyping. So now we need to really focus on the scale. One of the things that Heidi Shu said recently is that she wants to go in exactly that direction. It's time to move from prototyping to, to production, to delivering capability. What are the biggest obstacles that you see to being able to do that, Megan? Oh gosh, where to start? Um, this is the uh, <laughs> this is the valley of death that you constantly are hearing now, and that's the yep. big buzzword. Um, you know, I think OTAs and CSOs and all of these things are really fantastic for getting emerging technologies onto contract really fast. But there's, 
I would say two main things that we have to focus on. One, the workforce. She talks about the workforce of the future. That workforce does need to understand and be trained not only how to use those innovative authorities, but then the innovation catchers, the people that are working in these massive billion-dollar programs, don't know how to ingest it into the programs. So there needs to be a, a really big retooling of the both the contracting and the program workforce to understand how to do that effectively. But I would say the second part of that is really we have to change the incentives for the prime contractors. You know, we're expecting them to integrate. AI capabilities and all these futuristic capabilities that the department really needs to stay competitive, but still asking them to do butts in seats and time and materials work. So, you know, put yourself in their shoes, right? If I'm a, if I'm a large SI, am I going to bid out 10 people at a billable rate and make a boatload of money? Or am I going to pull in a vendor that I just passing through the licensing cost, even though it saves billions of dollars for the department. I'm just not incentivized to do it. Mm -hmm. What changes that? Is that some policy in the department? Is that some uh, good citizen decision uh, on the part of the SI? Is that uh, congressional uh, intercession, some combination of all of those or something else that I didn't include? You know, I would I would like to think that we could have strong citizen engagement, but look, they're they're listed on the on the market. They've got they've got a stockholders to yeah. to appease, right? So I think it's probably a combination of policy and also just there's a lot that we can do. We have all the authorities and everything we need. We have the flexibilities. The FAR, it's unpopular. The FAR was designed to be flexible. So we can change the incentive structure. Like imagine if we held the primes to a different standard or the way that we were incentivizing them was different. So one thing I think, for example, is, you know, we are, we monitor, like, are they on time and are they on schedule? But we don't really look at their outcomes. Like, did they actually accomplish what we needed them to accomplish? And what if the incentive and the pay structure was based on that rather than being on time and on schedule? Where do we begin though? I think that it's, it's probably not as hard as it seems to begin, you know, just like we started off with prototyping and these more um, centralized innovation hubs, right? We started one and then they started a software factory. So we need to stay agile and keep testing things. But, you know, I'll give you an example. We're actually, Decode's working on a program right now and it's a multi-billion dollar program and a massive consolidation of 10 different or so, I can't remember the exact number of contracts. And they were going to award a task order in the third year for quote unquote innovation. And we said, time out you already missed the boat. If you're waiting that long to figure out how to inject innovation into this, we've done this wrong. So I think pick some of these major transformative procurements and start and just look, give a really deep look at how we're writing the requirements. You also have to reach this industrial base. They're not monitoring SAM, right? What What is SAM? Why would I even go there? And then you put all these other procurement, the innovative procurements, there are 19 websites I have to go to. That's just not going to happen. So we have to actually put on our marketing hat so I think a lot, just pick a couple, let's just get started. And once one or two of these major, major programs does it successfully, I think it will really take off. To your point about uh, authorities and so on, um, FedScoop reported last week, Doug Bush, the new head of acquisition for the army says he doesn't need any new authorities. He doesn't need new processes. He needs to leverage the ones that his service and the rest of the Pentagon has now. Is that at least, in your view, a step in the right direction that somebody of his authority is saying, I got what I need, don't give me any new stuff I have to deal with, and and he's willing to think about things in a different way? 
Yeah, I think that's right. And I completely agree, to be honest with you. Um, a lot of it is we just need to use what we have and you have to use it creatively. You know, I had a great discussion um, with a three-star in the Air Force recently. He was having a hard time getting budget approved. And the conversation was, why are you asking the Hill for budget for artificial intelligence? That's never going to go through. You have to ask for um, detection in the South China Sea. Like, what are you using it for? That will go through. So a lot of it is just comes down to being a little bit more creative what we ha- with what we have. Um, but I look, I think there's two things. One, there needs to be a retooling of the workforce that we have to understand how to be creative. We need to teach the leaders how to give better top cover so that they have the psychological safety to try new things and not get in trouble for it. But there's a lot of focus on retraining and retooling but let's go back to the problem and the root cause. We, we trained people how to be the frozen middle, right? We started early days and just pounded into them. You're going to go to jail if you do all these things and this is risky. And then we're surprised that they're stuck where they are. So how do we fix that problem as well? So we have to tackle both. Let's retool, but then let's rethink how we train from the get-go. All right. Um, what would be the elements of that retraining in order to change the culture that already exists? Because Obviously, we would start uh, training the new people in a new way, but we've got to kind of unbreak bad habits, it sounds to me. You know, I struggle with what I call them bad habits versus they worked for what we needed to do back when we started, when they were designed, right? But we can't buy emerging technology the same way we buy a battleship. We just can't. And that's what our acquisition system is kind of teaching us to do. So a couple of things. One, we have to retrain not just acquisition folks, program folks, everyone, how to be outcomes oriented instead of output oriented. Okay. And that's a different structure. So for example, don't tell me you need a red rocket with two boosters and the USA down the side. Tell me you want to go to the moon and you might get slingshot up there, which is an actual technology that exists. So you know, we have to kind of rethink how we are asking for capabilities, but we also have to think more um rethink in agile terms. So the concepts of failing fast, we hear that all the time, but what the heck does that mean? Um, One part of it is uh, the outcome and the success you're looking for in a really short sprint is, did it work or did it not? And if you can answer that, that was successful. And if the answer is it didn't work, then you don't do it again. And that's how we end up in this loop where we keep putting money into things that don't work. And then a billion dollars later, we don't have a solution. That's going to require a complete and total revamping of the requirements process, though, because there's nothing that you said there that sounds at all like anything that is traditionally uh, what happens in the requirements process. That, I'm, that's absolutely right, uh, <laughs> which, of course, is not an easy thing to do. But if we want to stay competitive, I just don't really see a choice because the, the speed at which technology is changing it's impossible for anyone in the department to know how to write a requirement for it and keep up with that speed. So the second we put our requirements out, it's already stale. So if we are, and the other thing is, you know, most of the workforce didn't think they were joining a technology driven program. They joined the department to fight for, you know, the great country that we live in, but guess what? Every program is a technology program now. So we don't have a choice. Megan Metzger, thanks very much as always. Great to have you. Thanks so much.
You can find a link to the Defense Department Defense Industrial Base Competition Study Megan talked about in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop Podcast. The new Chief Information Officer at the Department of Veterans Affairs says he wants a, quote, deep interlock between government and industry. Kurt Delbene will give more details about what that means on tomorrow's Daily Scoop Podcast. COVID tests are arriving in mailboxes all over the country after a partnership between the U.S. Digital Service and the U.S. Postal Service. That partnership rolled out a web interface with last-mile service delivery in about a month. Natalie Cates is product manager at the U.S. Digital Service and runs the COVID-19 operations there. Preetha Mera is chief information officer at the U.S. Postal Service. Welcome to both of you. Uh, Natalie, I start with you. What was the time frame and what was the genesis of this? How, who started what in order to get this operation rolling? Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, in the beginning, I think this was just sort of a, a twinkle in the eyes of the administration trying to figure out how to best support the country through the Omicron phase of the pandemic. Um, and we begin looking at how we might get tests out to the American people. There were lots of different ideas originally on how we might do that. And we pretty quickly landed on working with USPS. They were the only organization we looked at that had both the technical capability to actually run and um, stand up a website in the timeframes we were looking for and the ability to get packages delivered to the American people. What was the technical capability that you believed inside USDS you needed to facilitate all of this, Natalie? Inside USDS, the biggest thing we needed was expertise to know what risk levels look like and to be able to guide the administration on uh, both what they could do to reduce those levels and sort of what was realistic given the goals of the program. Preetha, welcome and thanks for joining the conversation. Um, when this idea first came to the Postal Service, what did you see as the potential obstacles to be able to make it happen or to be able to make it happen in a period of time where the tests were still useful, valuable to the people that ordered them? I think it was twofold. One, of course, but the one challenge was the timeline, of course. <laughs> and, and then the second challenge was um, we really didn't know how many orders we were going to get at, a, at our peak. I mean, we, we, we were all guessing, but that was... That was one of our big challenges. So we we chose to go on the you know on we on the very conservative end of our expectations. So Natalie came to me and said, "You should be able to do a million orders an hour," and I translated that to twenty million orders an hour, and that's what we planned for. <laughs> and boy, golly, I'm glad we did. <laughs> <laughs> what did you have in place infrastructure-wise before this idea came to fruition, and what did you have to put in place? Uh, infrastructure-wise, Preetha, in order to be able to accommodate that level of orders? Um, we had an, what we, an on-prem version of our product. It's called our postal store, where people can go in and order postal products. So we had that in place. So we had an ordering website in place. We also, but we somehow knew that that wouldn't cut it because we, we never, ever came close to 20 million orders an hour on that website. Uh, what we also had in place was we've done a lot of cloud configurations on products. And so we decided that we were going to build a redundant approach 
we were going to have uh, on-prem product as one option. And then we built, we actually built two cloud products as, uh, as uh, plan B and plan C. And very quickly, and plan A was actually our postal on-prem and very quickly plan A became plan C because we knew that we wouldn't be able to handle the orders at the speed and, and velocities that were expected. And so we, we already had a cloud platform that we were, we've, we've actually had multiple cloud platforms that we built several applications on. And so we harnessed um, a, 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 an aspect of those cloud platforms, which allows for massive scaling, massive, massive parallelization to process orders. And that's what we used. What, what sounds uh, encouraging for developing something like this, Pritha, though, is it sounds like you had kind of the skeleton in place already with the postal store and you, you had the pieces that you needed and it was more of scale than it was starting from scratch. That's absolutely right. So, you know, when you get an order, the first thing you do is you check the address, make sure it's a valid address, and then you actually have to process that order and hand it off to you know, the, uh, the, the inventory and distribution system to distribute the orders across the country. And so all of those um, functions and capabilities already existed, right? Address validation, you know, we, we do that for a living. And then of course, um, we, we already had an inventory system. So it was really the, uh, uh, it was really scaling it up to that 20 million is where we spent most of our time. Natalie, what was the same about this project and what was different from other projects? What did you have to design from scratch for this one? And what were you able to use from, uh, uh, from other projects that USDS has done? For this project, most of what we leveraged was actually the expertise in how to organize large government bureaucracies to deliver technology in tight timelines. Um, we had some support from the Office of Digital Strategy within the White House to build what turned into sort of the homepage for COVIDtest.gov. Um, but otherwise, as, as Preetha mentioned, one of the reasons that we were excited to partner with USPS on this project is they had the blueprint for what we already wanted to do from a technical perspective, and we could focus on scaling um, that service instead of building something from scratch. Is it different, Natalie, to build a project like this where you know the idea is to complete it as quickly as humanly possible rather than a project where the idea is to get it done as soon as you can, but there's not really a drop-dead date. There's not a deadline like there is in a situation like the product that you're delivering here. Definitely. One of the, the sort of great things about having such a tight timeline is it really forces you to prioritize and keep the product and the service delivery, very, very simple. Uh, I don't know if you noticed this when you were ordering your own test, but there are not very many bells and whistles to this product. You can order tests. You don't get a choice in the tests. You don't get a choice in the number of tests. Uh, you don't have to put in your credit card information because you don't have to pay for those tests. They are free. And so it really allowed the teams to streamline and simplify what our product requirements look like and that gave us the ability not only to deliver in those tight timelines, but to also decrease the risk of delivering in those tight timelines. Preetha, did that simplicity make your job easier too? The fact that somebody was choosing either yes or no, and that was pretty much it? It absolutely did, because you, when you think about it, you know, obviously the thing you want to make sure you do is 
follow the guidelines of what, what the White House wanted, you know, to a T. And that is, how do you prevent people from gaming the system, right? So, but because the rules were very simple, it was four tests per residential address, right? So we had an easy way to know that. And so we, you know, that, and, and I think the, so the website was really simple. All you had to do was give us your name, if you wanted to, your email and your address. And, and you know, that's all we really needed for, for us to, uh, to deliver a test kit to the home. What did you do, Preetha, to test this, to break it, to see uh, whether mm-hmm. it would hold up under the kind of volume that you were expecting? We actually ran very large scale simulations. So we actually, we own tools that you can simulate an order entry on the website. And we actually ran, we started, you know, at a million and then we ran up. And since we had, uh, as a team, my CIO group, we laid out a goal of 20 million. And again, this was really a shot in the dark because we, we didn't know what to expect. And so we did a massive, what we call customer acceptance testing, where we ran orders across the, the in a test environment of up to, uh, up to 20 million. And that's really when we migrated option A to option C, because our on-prem product didn't come anywhere close to, I mean, it met the million, but it started struggling thereafter. And so that's when we said, okay, plan A, we start with our cloud version and, you know, then we have these backups. So, yeah. What did you learn, Preetha, from that experience that you will apply to future projects that you do? I don't expect that you probably will have a project that will have this kind of volume in such short periods of time, but I guess you never know. Oh, I will tell you that the design that we put into this program was very, very elegant in that we, it was a very modular design where we decoupled the order acceptance from the order processing to the order fulfillment and delivery. And um, and the cloud architecture that we put in place where we used two very um, sort of modern concepts, one is the concept of containerization and the other is the concept of queuing. Uh, those theories are now going to be very, very frequently and readily harnessed in, because as you can think about this, we may not be you know, doing an order processing, but we do deal with very large scale elements of data. So, you know, if you think about our scan data where we scan every mail piece and every package. So this this design is going to really be harnessed in a lot of other applications. And we are really excited about it. I mean, our technology team really loved doing this project because it it's a technologist's dream, you know, to be able to do something this big. And of course, being successful was even more euphoric, but yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's especially exciting. I bet that it rolled that it came off as expected. That it worked the way that it expected. Natalie, uh, same mm-hmm. question to you. What do what do you take away, and what could other organizations across government take away from this um, and apply to future projects? I think that this is a really great example for folks of what good government service delivery looks like. At the end of the day, there was a bunch of technology involved in this project, but it was really about how do we get a needed good to Americans in the middle of a pandemic. And that 
service delivery, the combination of the user experience and the technology and processes and organizational know-how that needs to exist in combination to actually do service delivery well uh, is something that I'm I'm very proud of how it came together here. And I think it serves as a blueprint, not just for the uh, future projects for this administration with the customer service executive order that the president signed um, late last year, but also to state and local governments as they think about how they want to get service delivery out to their populations. Yeah, Natalie, what I haven't heard either of you say is we set out to deploy X kind of technology in order to do this. You set out to solve the problem and use the technology to solve the problem. Am I, am I hearing that correctly? Exactly. And the technology was part of being able to do this well. So we needed expertise uh, from myself and the USDS team, also from Preetha and the team at USPS to make sure that we could deliver this service well and that it was going to work. But uh, we didn't set out to build a really cool piece of technology that just happened to do something for the, the country. Natalie Preetha, thanks very much for coming on talking about your project. Congratulations on its success. Thank you. Thank you so much. You can read more about the stand-up of covidtests.com in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Wednesday, you'll hear from the VA CIO, Kurt Del Bene. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening to the Daily Scoop podcast. 